Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Bento Box and Clover. From websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments, and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I guess, to a certain extent, I've always kind of uh, pushed the envelope a little farther. I am amazed, you know, uh, how little I know about cooking when uh, I go to our new chef now or something which uh, for someone in West Africa may be around of the mill, you know, what they eat every day. For you, say, wow, I've never seen that, you know. Even me, more and more as you get older, I suppose I realize how little that I know to a certain extent. That is the voice of the legendary Jacques Pepin, whose new book, Art of the Chicken, published this week. Jacques is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is the great Jacques Pepin. More on why this living legend is joining us for the third time in just a moment. Before we jump into the show today, I want to send out my condolences to the friends, colleagues, and especially to the family of Richard Capizzi. Richard was a brilliant pastry chef who had been battling cancer for a few years. He was based in New York, as I am. I did not know Richard well, but saw him every spring at a mutual friend's Memorial Day party, where he often brought, set up, and served dessert to something like 100 people on his day off on a holiday weekend. He did it all with a smile on his face. He was someone whose energy I always enjoyed. I had the pleasure of enjoying his food in several restaurants over the years. And if you follow the chef community on Instagram, you know that he was beloved. And I just felt it was important to send out my condolences uh, to those who knew him, uh, especially those who knew him better than I did. Uh, At the top of this week's show, I was very, very sad to learn of his passing. I knew he'd been sick. Uh, I didn't know the status of his uh, fight with cancer. And uh, I'm very sorry that we lost him. On a much different note, I would like to thank 
belatedly a listener, a new listener by the name of Chase. I was at Francie Restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a few weeks ago. As many of you know, it's probably my favorite restaurant right now, certainly in my top five. Uh, Maybe not even just in New York, maybe anywhere. I love that restaurant. And uh, I was making my way back to my seat at the bar where I was having dinner that night when Chase, again, one of our listeners, jumped up from his table, recognized me, and wanted to say hello. He is not in the restaurant industry, but he recently discovered the pod and is working his way through the catalog. And he couldn't have been nicer. It was really great, especially after, you know, what we've all been through the last couple of years to connect with a listener in person like that, that hadn't happened in a while for me. Uh, I also want to use this as an occasion to just say thank you to all of you who have reached out, mostly by Instagram message, to welcome me back after the hiatus we took toward mid to late summer. Uh, I'm very happy to be posting the show again weekly and to be hearing from those of you who have taken the time to write. And please, 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 if I have not responded to you, I will in time do that. It's a busy time for me. I am still finishing the book I've been talking about. Uh, It's actually, I got to get it in by next week and I'm doing a lot of other work, but please know if you have written to me, it is very much appreciated and I will get back to you personally before too long. I I don't want to just, you know, put a little heart next to your message. I try to respond to everybody and I will respond to you if you haven't heard from me yet. I also want to remind L.A. listeners that I will be in conversation with the great Mary Sue Milliken at the L.A. Chef Conference on Monday, October 17th. The conference this year is a who's who of Los Angeles culinary talent. I'm thrilled to be a part of it, especially since I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm very honored uh, that Brad Metzger and his team have invited me to participate. Um, If you visit the episode page for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com, you can click through to the website for LA Chef Conference and learn more about who's participating, what they're going to be presenting or speaking about, and uh, that's also where you can get tickets. Running a restaurant means keeping up with the times, and now more than ever, the times keep changing. Luckily, technology has the power to make keeping up a whole lot easier. Bento Box and Clover are now working together to provide restaurants with the technology they need for even more success. From Bento Box's world-class website design and marketing tools to Clover's state-of-the-art solutions for managing point-of-sale transactions and payments, every detail that goes into a great hospitality experience is supported and streamlined. So whether you own or operate a restaurant or group of restaurants, you're free to focus more time on human interactions, which of course is what restaurants are all about. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. And speaking of Bento Box and Clover, if you heard our last episode, you know that we are sharing a limited series of special report interviews on the subject of restaurants and tech brought to you by Bento Box and Clover. And I'm really excited about today's segment and a follow-on to last week's conversation about how to make your restaurant website work best for you. Today, we're going to examine how to distinguish different restaurant concepts within the same organization or company with distinctive websites. 
To get into this, I asked a friend of the pod and my personal friend, Chef Eric Williams, a recent winner for Best Chef Midwest at the James Beard Awards, to join me. Eric, as many of you know, has for several years now presided over the hit restaurant Virtue in Chicago and very recently opened Daisy's Po'Boy and Tavern, also in Chicago. In our conversation, Eric told me a little about this new casual restaurant and how he and his team went about creating a website identity for Daisy's in conjunction, of course, with the Bento Box and Clover team that distinguished it from Virtue. Here is our conversation. Eric, thank you very much for coming back onto the pod. It was nice to see you recently in New York. I wanted to talk to you about restaurant websites and about the idea of adjusting your approach to a website to reflect a different concept. You just recently opened Daisy's Po'Boy and Tavern. It's a bit of a departure in a way from what you do at Virtue. Before we talk about the websites, maybe you could just tell people, because it is so new, about Daisy's. Daisy's is a um, po'boy shop that pays homage to New Orleans most recognized sandwich. And um, it's meant to be fun and upbeat and um, colorful. And it also pays respects to my late Aunt Daisy, who married a New Orleans man. And um, they were happily married for about 48 years until... Uh, we lost her during the pandemic, but not of the pandemic. And so my my memories, which are all fun, are of this super vibrant woman who um, didn't take any mess, but was always prepared to have a good time. And um, she was colorful and full of life and laughter. And so this is, you know, my way of um, celebrating her life through food. You know, it's funny. I haven't been there yet. I'll obviously go there the next time I get to Chicago. I've been to Virtue a few times. Uh, it was interesting to me looking at the website for Daisies because, you know, I look at the website for Virtue. I wouldn't call that site overly formal, but it is a fairly um, orderly website. It, it seems to have a bit of a seriousness of of purpose. It conveys to me kind of the spirit of that restaurant, which is it's a serious place, but not overly serious, that it's, it is a place, uh, as you say on the site, where, where Southern food can be enjoyed. It also speaks to some of the different programs and partnerships that you all get involved in. And then, you know, getting ready to talk to you, I look at the website for Daisies, and it's a completely different animal. I mean, the the artwork is uh, of a more casual nature. Uh, you get a whole different vibe looking at the Daisy site from the Virtue site. Uh, can you just speak to how deliberate that was and how you went about that? Daisy's is casual. It, I mean, we don't have service, for goodness sake. It, it's a it's counter-service restaurant. Um, as some of my friends coin it, it, it feels like a um, New Orleans cafeteria. We love that. So we wanted the site to reflect that. We, we did, you know, we're not taking ourselves serious. Uh, we're just taking what we do serious. And for goodness sake, it's a sandwich shop. And so there, there's not a lot of earth tones. It's a lot brighter. It's a lot more fun, um, even upon, you know, first sight. And there are not a lot of distractions. You know, with, with Virtue's website, we want people to hone in on the messaging. And we want people to take the brand. I don't know if I could say more seriously 
Uh, but but there's some tones or, or some notes that we want to hit that that really represent a more focused approach to polish. Days is an unpolished spot. <laughs> so um, and, and, and we feel good about that. Yeah, it's funny. I look at the site and I have to assume this was intentional. But, you know, I grew up in I grew up down in Florida. I took road trips and things like that. And, you know, I look at that site and and that site to me, um, much as I expect when I get there, I'm going to feel like it's, um, you know, trying to in some way maybe transport me a little bit to what it is that you guys are riffing on at Daisy's. That site could be the site for a place, you know, that wasn't from a chef uh, of your accomplishments, you know, uh, you know, down south, uh, you know, and you, you spoke to the kind of fun of it. There is, for example, something as fundamental as the when you get to the homepage, the trim, uh, you know, the little graphic around the it's it moves. Right. It, it's almost got like a Showtime lights kind of effect. Yes. Um, that is something that would have been completely out of place uh, on the virtue site. But, you know, I see that and it is this kind of like just come down and hang out and have a good time. And, you know, you do on the site talk about like this is a place where you might go and get a po'boy and watch watch the ball game. Absolutely. We want daisies to be a more dressed down uh, version of the other things that we do. It's like the T-shirt to the button down or the collar shirt. It's one of the reasons why we love being able to work with Bento Box because they offer a lot of options and variety through their graphic designers and their and their IT team that you know can kind of help you get to a place and really capture the messaging that's so important for your branding. You know, we've seen a lot of restaurants over the years that are kind of kitschy, fun, upbeat, and you look at a restaurant that's just been around a long time, no matter what, how much you love the food or not, it's something about, you know, golden arches that you know exactly what that is when you see it, wherever you are. So how do we create brands that are lasting and that are kind of seared into our subliminal? And part of that lasting brand should reflect a sense of comfort and a sense of joy. And we believe we're striking that with daisies. I have to ask Eric, just cause I mean, you're younger than I am, but neither of us, we, I don't think either of us would call ourselves, you know, young, right? I can remember a day when I was a restaurant publicist and, and restaurants would say to me, do you think we need to get a website? You know, like when the internet was starting to happen, but it seems like such a big consideration for restaurants because so often it is how people, you know, they hear about a place or certainly in the case of a restaurant like Virtue, they want to make a reservation. You know, the first thing you do, probably, unless you live, you know, in, an, in, in the area and you're going to walk right by it, you probably do go to the website to get a kind of get a whiff of what the place is all about. I is Has that been an adjustment in your career to this being such a fact of a restaurant's life, this uh this kind of virtual presence, you know, needing to sort of exist in the matrix the way we all do today? You are correct. I am a little bit younger than you. And I can remember the brick phone. I can remember when Blackberries were a must-have. I can remember when it seemed like the flip phone would never go away. As long as I've been in restaurants, I've been at restaurants that have always had a website. So... For me, that feels like part and parcel. Um, I do recognize that there's still restaurants 
community restaurants that don't put that in their budget. And I find it mighty hard myself when I am in town and I am trying to navigate the land and find where a thing is if I can't get a glimpse of what it is that they're doing. I think people are very visual. I think chefs recognize that very early on. That's why presentation is so important with us with food. And it doesn't matter if you're doing a burger or if you're doing a a 24 course meal, visuals are important. And you correlate that to what goes on on the site. I I definitely correlate that because it's information. It's visual information for us. I I think it's critical to tell you the truth for, for, for a greasy spoon, for uh, a fine dining restaurant, you know, just something as simple as a landing page that has the the critical information, you know, um, hours, location. I I think that stuff's um, been important for a long time. When I look at these two sites, uh, you know, virtue and daisies, you know, juxtaposed or look at one right after the other. And I'm just wondering if you can tell me what it is. Uh, But they both, they do feel of a piece to me. You know, these are, you do explore the South, right? Or on one of the sites you use the term up South um, cooking. Uh, I mean, these are, are, are are they two sides of the same coin? Uh, Is that too narrow? Like if you open another place, I assume it'll probably be, in that same, um, uh, you know, milieu, right? Examining some other aspect of, of Southern food. Um, how do you think about it? Do, are these just different elements of the same culture? They're definitely elements of the same culture, and we're looking at it through two different lenses. Um, you, I mean, some of the best restaurants in the, in the world are in Louisiana, um, much like many of our towns um, around, around the U.S., and adjacent to that, that that best restaurant is this sought after sandwich. You could you could walk away from the sandwich and just talk about beignets, and it's a whole topic. As a black chef, thinking about food, how it's processed, the history of it, the technical side of both execution, presentation, and delivery. It's important to me to be able to tell these stories and curate these experiences um, through the lens of a chef of color. We've seen a lot of people um, talk about food that was both fabricated, managed, and delivered um, by by African-Americans in our country. And um, I think we have a say in the topic. And so this is this is merely me expressing my 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 voice. Um, that's it. You know, my perspective. Again, my great thanks to Eric Williams for joining us. And just a quick correction. I believe in the introduction to that segment. I said that Eric had won Best Chef Midwest at the James Beard Foundation Awards. The award is actually titled Best Chef Great Lakes Region. In any event, thank you, Eric, for joining us. And please do visit Bento Box and Clover to learn how they can provide you with the technology you need for more success. Again, the website is getbento.com slash better. So our guest today is Jacques Pepin. I'm 
honored to be able to say that this is his third visit to the podcast. Jacques Pepin is someone I've known a very little bit for a very long time. Uh, I'm quite certain he probably doesn't remember our first interactions, which were at restaurant openings and things like that. Boy, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago. Uh, he's always struck me as just the consummate gentleman. He is obviously one of the great culinary figures here in the United States. He's an incredibly important educator. He's been a, a constant presence in the food world for generations now. And I find him to be one of the most unaffected, down-to-earth people of his stature that I've ever met in any field. Uh, he has this new book out. It is called Art of the Chicken. And when I was asked if I would have him back on the podcast by the PR team for the book, I said, you know, I'll always have Jacques Pepin on this show. He could come on every week if he wants. But we have reverted back to our pre-COVID policy of only doing our feature interviews in person. And I invited myself up to his home. I'd never been there before. I do know that he lives in Connecticut and that it would probably take me a few hours in my car to get there. Um, he, of course, gracefully as ever, uh, accepted. And last Friday, I drove up there uh, to see Jacques and I uh, hadn't seen him since uh, certainly since the pandemic descended on all of us. So it had been several years. And, um, you know, at 86, he's just amazing. There was actually a, a pretty uh, flattering and uh, I think insightful article about him in the New York Times this week uh, about what he's been up to. Jacques, of course, still cooks. He does cooking demonstrations on Facebook that have become very popular. Um, he's been painting for a long time now, for decades, and we get into the story of how this book came together, but it's a quite singular book. The full title is The Art, excuse me, not The, the full title is Art of the Chicken, A Master Chef's Paintings, Stories, and Recipes of the Humble Bird. Now, that's an unusual sounding concept, but the book is actually exactly what that sounds like. It is a, a mingling of Jacques' paintings, paintings of chickens um, that that are sprinkled throughout the book, stories from throughout his life that are occasioned by chickens. Uh, it, he had a realization at some point that chickens have always been there. He uses those as kind of the organizing principle of the book. And of course, he shares recipes that tie in to the stories that he tells in the book. And again, as I say, it is illustrated by these very vibrant, life-filled paintings that he has done of this bird. And I adore this book. I have to be honest, when I first was pitched it, it sounded a little weird to me. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, you know, like, what what is this going to be when it arrives? And it showed up and I plopped down on my couch. And, you know, a couple hours later, I emerged from Jacques' life, Jacques' stories, Jacques' recipes. I made me want to cook. Um, and, uh, as I say, I'm just, you know, every once in a while, any job I think can start to seem like a grind, uh, the ability to, to go up and, and spend a couple of hours with someone of Jacques, um, I want to say stature, but that's not right because he, like I say, he's such a humble guy and, 
like I say, I'm just honored to have him on the show for the third time. I'm honored to know him a little bit. And um, it just made me happy. Just made me really happy to go up there. Uh, I think you can probably tell from the smile on my face in the picture for this episode that uh, I just love spending time with this guy. He's one of a kind. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with the great Jacques Pepin. Here you go. Can I get you to count to five for me, please? Okay. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, sept, huit, Thank you. Good to see you again. I am recording, just so you know. Oh, great. Okay. Um, thank you for letting me come to your home. Oh, you're welcome. Thank uh, you. So we're here to talk about this book. Uh, I love this book. When I first thank you. When I first heard about it, I thought, well, that sounds very specific <laughs> but it actually is not specific it's actually it sounds very specific but what the what you cover in this book is so broad can you just yes what were, what was the sort of what was the origin of this book because it seems to me like such a personal uh thing like that probably yes. no one else would come up with exactly this book with these components maybe not i mean the point is that to start with it was a book of uh, drawing and painting of chicken so it started here you can see in my wall there i have 12 large book of menus when people come here after 54 years of marriage over 50 years ago we started writing a menu when people came and on the other side people sign and say funny thing we put the, the wine label sometimes the music i realized that illustrating those with a fair amount of chicken so it started there uh, drawing chicken i am from a part of france which is very well known for the poulet de bresse the chicken of breast which are considered you know one of the greatest chicken so uh, the the drawing part of it maybe started there uh, those book, as I said, uh, are basically my whole life. Over 50 years, my daughter, Claudine, is mid-50 now, and she came the other day and said, what did I eat for my third birthday? I said, let's look. We find our third birthday where she drew actually some chicken. So uh, that was that part of it. The other part is that, frankly, um, I didn't want to do recipe, but I went into story about eggs, or chicken uh, in a narrative way to explain to people because I feel that uh, certainly the chicken and eggs are maybe uh, the most democratic of all food and I don't really know any country when I was in West Africa or China or to any country that doesn't use chicken or eggs and uh, any cooking from a truck stop to a, to a, uh, a three-star restaurant with truffle under the skin so the chicken can be brought to a to a very elegant, a very special meal and a very ordinary fried chicken or two, whatever. So the chicken is the meat, maybe what pizza is for people, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, so that started this way and then I start talking about 
my experience, and certainly in those, it's more of a narrative type of thing, uh, some recipes are feasible. Certainly, I explained my mother used to do that, saute too, and so forth, but some of them are not feasible. Uh, that brings us to another point, because at the beginning, my, my editor there said, oh no, I need more of a list of ingredients, and uh, I said, but that's not that type of thing. She said, well, I said, all right, fine. So I gave her Poulet Mère Brasier in Lyon, one of the formidable women of Lyon, La Mère Brasier, in the 40s at a three-star restaurant. Actually, that's where Bocuse did his apprenticeship. And her uh, very well-known dishes was the uh, chicken in a pig's bladder. So the chicken put at the breast, of course, with truffle under the skin, was put in a pig's bladder with an onion, a leek, and a carrot, and just poached slowly and brought to the table all inflated, so it's very uh, very visual if you want, and then up and there they remove the chicken, reduce the juice with some butter, and, and, and serve it as such. So it's a very, very simple recipe in some way, and at the same time very sophisticated. It's sort so, of the original sous vide, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So at that point, you know, I I said, okay, you want a list of ingredients? Okay, a pig's bladder, three truffle, one... Tr-. She said, whoa, 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 what did I say? See, this is not that type of uh, of book, but uh, it's still, of course, a recipe and a story and so forth. So. But this goes back, when you talk about this recipe approach, this this is probably, I would imagine, how you learned to cook, that, that recipes, yes. um, I think in the introduction, you talk about doing them almost like prose or yeah. narrative, like a na- right. as a narrative almost. Uh-huh. I mean, that's how you probably learned to cook. That's how we tell our friends how to cook. If yeah. you have a friend who knows how to cook right. and they want to know how did you make that di- dinner you served me on Saturday night, you, you, you just tell them. Yeah, you exactly. don't give quantities, yeah. you don't give times, you no. give. You tell them what it smells yeah. like and what it should feel like and what it should right. look like. But of course that was the way you learn how to cook years ago. It's also the fact that I was an apprentice when I was 13 years old and at that point it's a different way of uh, teaching than uh, when I teach at Boston University or at the French Culinary Institute in New York where people are in their mid-30 and uh, much more educated and so forth. When you are a kid, like this, the chef tell you do that and you wouldn't even ever say why. Uh, because if you say why, say, I just told you. I told you. And that's it. So you learn through osmosis in a different way. I mean, this is certainly for me, and I work over a year uh, cleaning the floor and uh, scaling fish and doing all of that uh, without any explanation of whatever until the day the chef told me, tomorrow you start at the stove. Me? I was terrorized. I knew the stove because I clean it up every day and put coal in it and wood and started. But so and somehow I knew how to do it. So it's a kind of osmosis, a different way of learning, certainly that we do in the, in school now. Let's talk about painting, right? Because this is this book right. is a. It, it, it has several elements. It has your your paintings of chicken. Uh, it seems like most of them happened in about the last 10 years or so. I saw some of them were dated back to maybe 2013. Yes. No, uh, and then some were like yeah, 2020. Yeah. No, there is some older one that I have in those books even, but yeah, certainly in the last few years, I have my friend Tom Hopkins, who lives here in Madison. He's a photographer, He's yes. a photographer, yeah. yes. And he decided, uh, 
well, we've been working together for over 40 years on different books. And he's the one who decided to do an outside with my name and start selling painting and, and uh, giclée and lithograph and so forth. So, uh, yeah, he's duplicating uh, chicken in one way or the other. Right. But, uh, Yes, uh, chicken are, are been part of my life. It's, uh, it's something which is very comfortable for me. I used to have some chicken in the back now, but with the raccoon and the stuff, <laughs> I, I decided <laughs> not to. I have a little friend uh, on the road here, Natalia from Jamaica, and she raised chicken. In fact, I'm waiting for eggs today from, from her. She raised some chicken and some duck and stuff. So, so uh, yes, it's very important to have a chicken with a happy chicken and uh, eat grass and warm and can give you good eggs and so forth. Uh, but I don't think there is any excuse now not to buy organic eggs because even in most supermarkets you have them and the price is basically, you know, nothing uh, much more. I mean, maybe five, ten cents more for an egg. So sure. it's not worth not buying it this way. Yeah. No. So yeah. do you remember the moment that it occurred to you to to do this book? I think of the chickens in this book as right. the dots of your life, and, right. and this is you yes, connecting yes. connecting the dots, right? right? Uh, you you realized at some point that chickens, as someone who grew up, as you say, where you did, that someone in your profession, chickens have always been there. Yes. Um, no matter where you went, they were there. Right. They became a focus of of the painting that you do. That right. that I that you must love. You've been with yes. doing it for so long. Um, and then, so, and in this book, you tell stories that are sort of occasioned right. in some way by a chicken, and then we have a, a, di a recipe of some in some form, and and then these paintings, right? It all right. makes so much sense when you're reading it. But how did you just wake up one day with that idea? Not really. As I said, it started with uh, with the painting, and uh, Tom wanted me to do a. Uh, you know, a book of my painting of chicken. I say, great. And I asked my, my my editor, and she said, no, we'd love to do. And then after they asked recipe, I said, oh, gosh, I don't want to do recipe. And then I said, fine, I will do, as I did, a memoir that I wrote in 2000, something like that, uh, called The Apprentice. So the uh, same idea, I said, I will tell you a story about chicken. And uh, many of them are not visible, but they are there. and. A story of eggs or chicken and so forth. I mean, maybe eggs for me, even maybe more than chicken. I love eggs in any form. I think I relate in the book a story when I was in Hong Kong, I believe, that I, uh, that was the only time that I couldn't swallow a, a recipe with eggs. I had gone to uh, Vietnam a couple of times, and I remember my wife and I uh, having breakfast, and we had those eggs. Uh, which were actually uh, fertilized eggs. So they were 12 to 14 days, and the chiquat is born at what, 21 days, whatever. So 12, 14 days, the whole embryo is there. And those were hard-cooked eggs. When you cut through, you have the whole embryo inside. Maybe, you know, and I thought it was actually quite good. It's fine. But then when I was in Hong Kong, uh, I go to the market, of course, wherever I go all the time. And I, I follow a line there at the market, and, and there is a, a guy there with a pile of eggs and a light and everyone comes to take like they look through the the light and again those were fertilized eggs and they break it open grab the the fetus inside the little chicken dip it in coarse salt and swallow it like this 
I didn't go so I couldn't swallow it. <laughs> you tried? <laughs> yes, of course I tried. Yeah. That was a bit too much. So that's probably the only time I remember that I couldn't swallow. That was your only <laughs> adversarial yeah. moment with a chicken? I guess so, yeah, <laughs> or with the eggs. Or the eggs. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about just painting, for, separate from the book? How did you start doing it, and how have you gotten as good as you have gotten at it? You have a very well, uh, distinct style at this point, I think you could say. You think so? I, uh, uh, I've i been told exactly the opposite. You know, you have ten panning, they're totally different one from the other. Oh, really? But maybe there is something common. Well, I'll take you upstairs to a studio to show some you some stuff. But uh, I started panning many, many years ago. Certainly, I came to this country in 1959, and uh, I started studying at Columbia University, which I went on from 59 to 73. <laughs> and at some point, I took a class in the sculpture and painting. I have that big sculpture there of, 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 of uh, Madonna that I did in... Uh, and other sculpture and oh, right in front, and, of, yeah. in front of the television, uh, right? Okay. And uh, so uh, I started doing that, and uh, uh, coincidentally, at that time, we were a whole bunch of friends, and we decided to rent a house in Woodstock, mm-hmm. New York, 1962, something like that. And it's a kind of uh, artist community, so we all started redoing old furniture, which I've always redone, and and stuff like that, and painting and so forth. So we all kind of got the bug. I guess. Yes, and started painting, and I always continue painting since that. At some point in my life, I did less painting, uh, but probably a bit more now, or a little sculpture, like I did Gaston here. Oh, there's a little <laughs> sculpture of your dog. Okay. Yeah, right. Very nice. So, uh, yes, uh, so painting was always kind of part of myself as well, and uh, I find some analogy with uh, with the cooking that I do in it, especially as a professional chef. I certainly, or think that I am probably a better chef than uh, than a painter, but uh, in a different way. That is through my training as an apprentice and repeat, 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 repeat. You know, so you become part of your DNA, so that I can go in front of a camera and think in terms of. Uh, I know, the texture, the color of the dish, my hands are just moving, fine, I don't have to think about it. And that through that training that we used to have as apprentice and repeat and repeat and repeat. So technically, that's what I did a book called La Technique and another one, La Méthode, year, over 50 years ago. And actually that book is still in print even though I don't cook the same way that I did 50 years ago, but the way you sharpen a knife or peel an asparagus is the same. So so that's why those books sure. remain. Uh, as a professional chef, uh, I am much more of a technician. As a painter, I don't really know how to mix uh, painting and two and the whole thing. I was bored with that. I never really investigated. But uh, there are similarities. When I start painting, very often I start with an idea, and uh, often it moves totally in a different direction. And uh, so I, uh, I'm waiting and keep working on it, and at some point, usually the painting takes a hold of you, and now I can start seeing it. So at that point I add 
color or shape or whatever just because it feels good I don't even kind of validate uh, what I do anymore I put that it looks good it looks fine it looks uh, so so I move with it this way after the the, the panning kind of as I said take a hold of me in a professional kitchen to a certain extent you do the same uh, you don't have any recipe uh, and you do um, you know in a, in a restaurant like Daniel you know you're going to do a, a kidney saute with a red wine sauce whatever it is uh, if someone is behind you and taking note exactly of what you're doing so they would do that then 15 minutes later you have the same order let's say you do it 10 times during the evening those 10, 10 dishes not one of the 10 will be the same exactly it will be slightly different they all come exactly the same at the end the taste but the process will be different maybe because you, your oven you, your skillet may be a bit too hot or it goes too fast it dries out so you react to it you test you adjust you put a teaspoon of water it looks dry you put two teaspoons of water you may never need to put two teaspoons of water when you do it but then you react to the food and eventually uh, the, the, the dish comes out so there is that type of reaction to the food following uh, that dish you know somewhere like I did the, the pining you know so there is similarity there in, in a sense I mean for me at least um, especially as a, as a professional chef which is always a kind of a, a paradox in the sense because uh, you do a recipe and you add A and B and that create a new entity and it looks dry you put as I say a quarter of a cup of water and then you continue go on and then you 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 relate that or you you write that down as you're doing it on the page eventually to have a typewritten recipe which is never going to be exactly the same again you know so right. uh, Maybe on a philosophical level, at least, writing a recipe probably destroys the recipe. You know? well, one of my favorite lines about uh, recipe writing yeah. is in the French Laundry Cookbook, oh. where Keller says in the introduction uh, that recipes have no soul, that you as the cook have to bring the soul right. to the cooking. That's right? true. And if, That's you just, true. if you just are just following a series yeah. of steps... Yeah. The magic isn't. Maybe you'll get lucky, but probably the yeah. magic won't happen. It's about yeah. how you season. Yeah. It's about how much garlic you yeah. use. It's yeah. about how hard you cook yeah. a certain ingredient. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree on that's what you're, that. But that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. However, um, I would say that. Uh, if you do a recipe, uh, you should do it exactly the way it is by whoever wrote that recipe the first time that you do it. I know people who say, oh, I never follow a recipe. They start there. Well, then you would have no idea whether uh, that would be to taste the way you, you do. So I, f I feel that the first time at least you do a recipe, you should follow it exactly. If it comes out good, then you're likely to do it again. So you do it a second time. By the third time, you say, maybe I put a bit more tomato or this. And a year later, uh, you have massaged that recipe to your own sense of aesthetic and taste, and it becomes your own. You don't even remember where you get it. You process it so that it becomes your own. Yeah. I think that's the proper way of moving ahead with a recipe. The way you just described yourself as a painter, right? You compared it to the training you had as a cook, right? Your right. training as a cook when you were a young man was, was very intense, right? And, yes. and you had to clear certain uh, hurdles before you were allowed to do the next thing. Yes. Uh, you, you started painting a little bit later. It, it's not your chosen craft or trade. Was it difficult for you when you started showing your work to other people? Or was it difficult to you to decide to put your paintings 
in a book. You know, in the in the culinary realm, yes. you're considered one yeah. of the, you know, well, the, you won't say this about yourself, but you're considered one of the, the masters, right? Well, Painting, you're not, yeah. you, this is not your, but you, here you I, are with a book of your paintings for people to, to I, buy and look at and spend. Yes. Is that hard for you to decide to share? In, in, in some way, yes. And, but I let, like, uh, my friend Tom, does, let him choose. Like we, uh, we have, a, I have another book coming out next year, and he's choosing fifty pieces of painting to. I let them do it. I don't even get involved because very often it's not what I would choose. But uh, uh, I, I don't get involved. I, I want them to see through their own eye and choose this or that rather than me. And very often, for many years, I paint, I painted whatever I painted landscape too, and I painted above it, and I put it above it, sometimes five, six paintings on top of the same canvas. Now Tom usually takes it away from me, so I don't. Uh, but the, the point is that uh, for many, many years, uh, I just gave painting away. People, one time I did, uh, maybe the first time, in Stony Creek here at the library, I did um, an exhibit of my painting, it's gotta be 40 years ago, and it was uh, Gloria Zimmerman, friend of mine, and uh, my wife Gloria too, we went there and all we did was uh, doing a buffet, food and wine, and we invited all our friends. And that was the way it was. And uh, I don't know how many paintings I had, maybe 30, 40, 50. And, uh, and at that point, I remember that night, people came and drink some things. They said, I like that painting. Okay, you can have it. Like that one. Okay, you can have it. So I uh, gave painting away all the time. You know, so, but, well, not now, I guess. Well. It's very charming that you were able to do that. I'm sure people yeah. must have loved that. Yeah, I mean... I, Did you have a hard time getting them to accept it? Uh, no, no. I, they usually pick up a painting that they like. They say, oh, okay. I like that one. So I say, okay, <laughs> you can have it. Right. Yeah, right. So. Um, you know, something in this book that um, struck me, and I, I, it's obviously not a universal thing, but, you know, I, I have children. They're, they're in college now, but... You know, I've heard this from so many parents in the United States, and the same would be true of my children. You know, there's a there's a um, almost like a trauma when they learn that, you know, the 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 proteins that we eat are animals. You know, that yeah. they've seen. Yeah. I feel like that's much less true in general of Europeans I've known. Of you course. talk in this book about rela- relationships almost yeah. with live animals, and of then course. in the next paragraph you're, you know, killing it and butchering yeah. it and right. eating it. Can you just speak to? And I, I'm, I, you know, where I do not see this, and I'm imagine this will be part of the answer maybe, is when I visit farms here mm-hmm. in the U.S. It's right. very normal for those people, right? Right, absolutely. Uh, but can you speak to the difference in the mindset, the way you were raised, and and how that's yes. uh, considered? You know, it applies not only to animal, to food as well. When Claudine was a year and a half, doing it with my daughter, I hold her in my arm and I say, okay, let me stir it. So she would stir the pot, so quote, she made it, so she was going to eat it. Uh, my granddaughter, uh, I, she just started at BU last week, so when she was three, four, she came here put a little stool next to me and I said, okay, give me the salad. You think it's clean? Do you look at it? Do, okay, go to the garden. They give me some parsley. I said, no, that's chive. Test it. No, that's parsley. That's tarragon. Okay, go to the market. Give me some pear, some, some tomato. You sure they are ripe? Did you smell them? Did you touch them? So, you know, she get involved into touching the food, uh, getting, and it's fine, uh, you know, and not getting, and did the same thing with, with animal. I remember when uh, Claudine was small too. 
one time I, I go by some squab in a in a farm on the, on our way up to and my wife who was born in New York City let used to that so I killed the, the squab you you actually smother them pressing the until they go and I put them in the trunk of the car actually half of them resuscitated by the time I get there but then Gloria which I'm, or I kill a rabbit on the road take the skin out of it and Gloria said oh, watch out for the kid I said watch out for what for what and Claudine never had any problem since he was when she was a kid using to go to the garden to get whatever in the garden and the food itself or the meat was the same way right. uh, fortunately I've been to place in the in the US where the kid for the kid a chicken is rectangular with plastic on top right. doesn't have any head or any, no feet you know so, yes. so that's it so they are totally so far away and we are one of the only country in the world and that's why we spoil maybe so much food I mean you don't have that in China or in Africa West Africa where people don't have that much to eat they have a communion with nature and with food which is much closer than what we did not that kind of a, a, you know abject uh, you know reaction uh, killing an animal or whatever which extend now to some people killing vegetables <laughs> or whatever yeah so that's that's not that's not part of uh, who I am and that's not part of what nature is for me I mean we we go I mean certainly I would not make an animal suffer you know I get uh, I get uh, a frog in my pond here you know so I know how to take the frog and kill it very fast and then skin it to the same way when I kill a rabbit okay do I enjoy it not particularly killing a rabbit or a chicken but I know how to do it doing it fast so the animal doesn't doesn't suffer and it's part of uh, nature it's part of who we are what we do so uh, except as I say people are so far away from it so they don't realize that kind of a communion with nature that I guess we used to have when I was a kid you know Thank you for all that. Yeah. It's it's interesting to me, and when you talk about wastefulness, right? That's yeah. not wasting uh, uh, certainly anything. Uh, you know, uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. That's a respect, you know, for the earth. I, I feel like not wasting animals. It, it sounds like an odd thing to say, but it it is a sign of respect. Oh yes, for the animal, for the life the animal yeah. gave up. Um, yeah. Uh, to you, and this also, I think, is. I mean, part of it, yes, is. Uh, uh, what my Italian friends would call parsimony, uh, uh, right. you know, not wasting anything because right. maybe you didn't have much money, you know, yeah. but, um, uh, but also it's, it's using every part of this animal that's given sure. everything to you. Yeah. I was raised during the war in France when yeah. I was a kid. So I'm very miserly in the kitchen uh, and my mother would be an aunt in my family. I come 12 restaurants in France, 12 of them run by women. So I was the first male to go into that business. And those were pretty formidable women and uh, they didn't waste anything, not a piece of bread or anything. You know, so uh, that's very important. That's why I talk in that book also about all of the offals of the chicken, whether it's the kidney or chicken feet or chicken liver or certainly the, the unborn uh, eggs of the chicken, the wattle, you know, the, the comb, and all of that was used in some sometimes some very sophisticated dishes. People get scared of those, but I don't know why. You know, in the book, you it's always striking to me uh, when a chef comes from France to the United States um, and um, accepts what goes on here with food, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of chefs, I think, who came over here around the time you did 
who are horrified by what they saw here. You tell this story in the book of working at Howard Johnson's. Right. And then you actually have your version of a Howard Johnson's chicken recipe in the book. Um, now, this yeah, to me, yeah. now you do tell the story also that you, to take that job, you gave up the, op- the opportunity to work at a great restaurant in New York City. Uh, but. Uh, no, I would do work at the White House. I oh, I'm sorry, it was the White House yeah, job. Yeah. I'm sorry, I confused it with a Pavillon story. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You were offered the White House chef job, yeah. and you went to work at Howard Johnson's. Right. It, it's interesting to me that you embrace. Uh, something like that. I mean, you make it your own in this book, yeah. uh, but you also have always, I think, talked in a very kind of open, receptive way uh, to American food, to what was going sure. on here during the years that you were here. Right. Is that just, uh, was that just your natural orientation yeah. to be open to things? I think that uh, I was never you know, too chauvinistic about food. It's interesting because uh, often I may be considered you know, the quintessential French chef, and then you take one of my book and you open page 32 and you have black bean soup with banana and cilantro on top, as my wife coming from you know, Puerto Rico and Cuba, and then you have a southern fried chicken and a lobster roll from Connecticut. So I'm probably <clears throat> the quintessential American chef now, <laughs> after all those years, because I've never been too, uh, I think, never been too chauvinistic about <clears throat> excuse me, cooking to and the fact that um, as you mentioned, I, I did not go to the White House and went to Howard Johnson. It doesn't seem it's not as noble as maybe you may think it is. The point is that I, I had been the chef of uh, president in France, and at that time, uh, under the Fourth Republic, I was with uh, uh, De Gaulle. I finished with him. 56, 58, and at that time certainly had never been, well, television barely existed, but never been on the television or radio or a newspaper or anything. The cook was in the kitchen back, there was absolutely never any kudo. They would never call you in the dining room for a kudo to applaud you. Are you kidding? That did not exist. The cook sure. was there too. If anyone come to the kitchen, it's because to complain about one thing or another. So there was no prestige to that. Any good mother would have wanted a, a child to marry a doctor, a lawyer, certainly not a cook. You know, so uh, when I was asked to go to the White House, uh, I did not really realize the potential and the way it was at that time. Certainly, uh, it was René Verdon, a friend of mine, who was the sous chef at the Essex House, who ended up uh, taking the job. And at that point, I think at the beginning, he sent me a picture of him with president, uh, Mrs. Kennedy and all that. It started in the 60s like this. Uh, but if you ask who was the chef at the White House before René Verdon, no one would have known her name no more than the new mine or whatever. It was the way it was. Yeah. So I'm saying that to say that maybe it wasn't as novel as <laughs> listening. It wasn't. To go to the yeah, it wasn't as uh, celebrated a position. Yeah, right? yeah no, not yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. What you just said, though, is interesting to me in terms of. Um, I guess kind of your own um, approach to life to some extent, and I'd, I'd love to know your reaction to this question. You know, you just you said you would you would you would cook for presidents right. back home, right? right? Uh, the Howard Johnson's job was a new job; that was a new thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It seems to me like this is what painting also for you. Like, do you do you think yeah. it's important? Have you made it a priority in your life to? 
within the realm of cooking, look for new things to do. Within the realm of the books you write, to look for a way to do, make, keep it fresh, you know, uh, as, yeah. as a means of expression, taking on painting in addition to cooking. Is that something yeah. that you've been um, intentional about as you yeah, have gone I, through your life? I, as you say, it, I, I guess to a certain extent, I've always kind of uh, uh, pushed the envelope a little farther, you know, trying to see. Uh, my wife, of course, loved uh, Chinese and Japanese food. Well, that's so we did that a fair amount. And uh, yes, uh, I am amazed, you know, uh, how little I know about cooking when uh, I go to our new chef now or something which uh, for someone in West Africa maybe run of the mill, you know, what they eat every day. For you, say, wow, I've never seen that, you know. So whether you travel anywhere in the world, I could probably do a book of recipe with chicken, actual recipe with like 10 or 12 or 15,000 recipe if you go all over the world. And oh, without, sure. Yeah, without any question. So, uh, you know, again, you know, I even me, more and more as you get older, I suppose I realize how little that I know to a certain extent, you know. Right. It's true, and you can always learn. You know, if you keep an open mind, whoever you work with in the kitchen, uh, you will learn something. Maybe you learn what not to do, but you learn something. Yeah, <laughs> but that's what keeps you, I mean, that keeps you yeah. energized, no? Yes, absolutely, of course, yeah. and a different point of view. I mean, people look at food in a different way. I, I would look at someone and say, wow, I would never have thought going this way. That's great, well, fine. Right. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always interested to get an answer from chefs on this question, and I, I'd be especially curious about yours since you do paint. Do you, What do you consider cooking? Do you consider it an art? Do you consider it a craft? Do you consider it something in between? What, what is it to you? Well, craft, without any question. Now, certainly there are uh, people like, uh, you know, Thomas Keller, Daniel Boulou, other, which transcend that level and go maybe a bit higher. But still, it's a craft for me. And to a certain extent, to be a good cook, you have to be a good technician to start with, um, for me, in my opinion. However, I know a fair amount of chefs who are pretty good technicians, can run a kitchen, have a good food course too, and are a relatively lousy cook. <laughs> the food is all right, but nothing that right. great. Yeah. But if you are that type of technique, I mean, till 11 o'clock in the morning, you have 100 people sitting down at 12. You know, you got to move. So, you know, you have to be a technician this way. But certainly chefs like, uh, uh, you know, Thomas or, or Daniel are chefs who not only are technician, but then they have talent and they have imagination, they have fortitude, you know, they move forward and keep working and learning and adapting and all that, so yes. But at that point, it's still a craft, maybe with a touch of artistry, how did it come to a level of that quality, you know, so. That's it, your answer reminds me very much of uh, Massimo Batura was on this show at oh. one point, and his stuff is so to me he's almost like a Dadaist yeah. you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. his stuff is so artistic in, in its yeah. look right? right and he immediately said to me craft it's a yeah. craft yeah. and he what he said was and I think it's similar to what you're saying is 
it has to function as food. Yeah. First and foremost, it, it, it has. Course, yeah. And he compared it to building like a, a car, yeah. right? You could build a Ferrari. It might be beautiful. Yeah. But first and foremost, it has to run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, any food critic for me should be blind, should be requested by law <laughs> so that they can start and say, that chicken with this and that. So that's already way ahead if you can do that. You, know, you mean so they're not seduced by the visuals? By the visual, yeah, yes. Right. So, I mean, the visual is fine. It's fine up to a certain extent, you know, certainly in pastry more. But when I see people taking a plate and cleaning it up for 15 minutes around and arranging things in a, in a uh, you know, in, in a t- tiny little thing arranging all around too. And uh, what I call also uh, punctuation cooking with little bottles to do a drop, a comma, a drop, a question mark. to go around. Aye, aye, aye. First, the thing is cold by the time you get it. Secondly, you have one tablespoon. You, there is no sauce or anything yeah, to yeah. go to, so it's it's exaggerated this way in uh, certainly in the type of cooking. So and you will see that in cooking like Chinese, who have extraordinary food too, you don't have that type of thing. The food is placed on the plate, and somehow there is uh, something natural about the food which looks good. Fine, you don't have. Occasionally in some buffet in Chinese, yes, you will have some decoration, but conventionally not much. But Conversely, in France, uh, you know, people, Americans tend to confuse and think of French cooking in the context of the Michelin Guide. There is only 600 restaurants also in the Michelin. I mean, there is like 12,000, but 600 star restaurants, like 20, 22, I think, three star, like uh, uh, 150 or 200 two star, and like four, 500 one star. You know, uh, my family, for the restaurant business, many, many people in my family had never eaten in a three-star restaurant right. in France. Yeah. So, you know, at that point, uh, I know I've been teaching at BU, as I say, 35 years, taking group to BU, uh, and we go to Brasserie or Fermoberge or thing in the country, and they say, wow, I thought this was Italian food. I mean, they're like, just a roast with... So I said, no, I mean, basically, this is the way people eat in France, too. Yeah. But somehow, uh, the Michelin level has Right. kind of maybe uh, too much in the mind of American people they really think that that's what right. French cooking well, is Well that's, that's like haute couture yeah. right? That's yeah, like right. the haute exactly. couture that's exactly. not what you wear every day yeah. That's, yeah. that's it yeah. That belongs yeah. in a museum or, yeah. yeah it's not the, yeah. the for, for everybody or for every day Right Yeah um, How do you sp- how are you sp- spending your time these days? I mean I spoke to you and uh, your son-in-law Roly uh, yeah. over the over the internet uh, like in 2020 a couple years ago Uh um I mean, things are lifting a little bit now. Right. Uh, we're sitting here indoors today. Right, right. Um, I see you sometimes giving cooking demonstrations. How are you filling your time these days? What, other than writing your next cookbook, what are you? Well, what are you doing? Last night I came back from a cruise. Uh, for the last twelve days, I was. Uh, I am culinary director of a cruise line, Oceania Cruise Line. So we actually didn't even take a plane. We left from New York, going to the Bahamas and up to Halifax, Nova Scotia, back down to. Quebec and uh, Montreal and drove back from Montreal. So I would do a couple of that every year. In fact, I'm working with the chef now on the new menu that they want to do. Uh, I am always uh, thinking either in cooking or in... Uh, I also, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, 
have done those videos of like three, four, five minutes on Facebook, which my daughter Claudine run, and uh, she asked me, could you do those with again my friend Tom, Tom, uh, um, Tom Hopkins, and uh, we were just the two of us at the beginning, even of the pandemic. Even his wife did not come into the kitchen, so I'm cooking, doing the dishes, and he's shooting. That's it, and we do ten or twelve of those a day, and we've done uh, almost three hundred now. So uh, very simple stuff that I have in my refrigerator or freezer or in the pantry or one thing or another. So uh, this is what Claudine wanted me to do, and that's what I did. And it has been more successful than I ever thought it would be because I think we had like 300,000 people in in Facebook uh, prior, and we have like 1.8 million now, so whatever. So, yeah, so that takes uh, some time uh, to me, and, you know, the cooking, the writing of recipe and demonstration, and I am pretty booked with that, uh, with that new book coming out. Um, I have um, the Greenwich Film Festival coming. Uh, uh, last week we were on a cruise. We have to go to Austin. I will be in New York with Carla Hall at uh, 90 Second. Uh, oh, at the Y? Yeah, at the yeah, Y. The 90 90 y. y. Nice. And, you know, other things like that uh, are coming up. Uh, Kind of all the time. In addition, we are playing bull. Tomorrow we have big competition of bull, so that takes time too. And I'm still cooking basically almost every day, except uh, for me alone, which is different. Yeah, so, uh, you mentioned uh, these demos you're doing now that have over a million followers. The videos. When you were growing up, did you ever see yourself as someone who would be no. s- such a teacher? I mean, no, to be no, a chef is one thing. That would, that would um, never have thought of. Never? No. Did you have, when you started doing television and whatnot, did you have to work hard to get good? Or did you find that you had a natural aptitude for teaching people how to cook? I think it was pretty, pretty natural. When I started doing La Technique, the book La Technique, I was starting to give some classes here, there, and... Uh, I would never have shown people how to peel a carrot. But then I'm in class, I'm peeling a carrot. People say, oh, that's how you peel a carrot. I said, yeah. So so I went back to really very basic type of thing, which was kind of second nature. And start showing this. And um, I met my wife upstate New York in the Catskill at Hunter Mountain. I used to be a ski instructor there for like 11 years. And she was in the ski patrol. Of course, she didn't tell me. She took classes with me, and uh, she skied better than me anyway. So, (laughs) But uh, uh, the point is that I like to teach you know, skiing. I like to teach cooking. I realize that I like to, or maybe I'm Cartesian, being from, I like to break down things in parts and know why it works this way and so forth. So to a certain extent, whether it's literature or uh, um, cooking or, or, or uh, you know, skiing or whatever, yes, there is that element of uh, teaching that I like. And that is our show for today. Again, my great thanks to the wonderful Jacques Pepin for joining us. And I would highly recommend that you either pick up or order Jacques' book, Art of the Chicken. I do think it is utterly charming and you will enjoy it and enjoy 
putting it out on your coffee table or using it in your kitchen or having it on your nightstand. It would be at home in any of those places. As always, our thanks to Sam Pellegrino for their long-term support of Andrew Talks to Chefs and our thanks to Bento Box and Clover for their support. From websites and marketing tools to point-of-sale payments and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend about the pod, posting about the show on social media, or rating or especially reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, which does help new listeners find the show. As always, our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. Our handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.